How Does Immigration Make Us Freer? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Fiona Harrigan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Fiona Harrigan. Fiona is an assistant editor at Reason, where she primarily covers immigration and foreign policy. Her writing has also been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, the Orange County Register, the National Interest, the Miami Herald, and many other outlets. She has been cited in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Hill, and Foreign Policy. Fiona has also appeared on The Final Five and Good Day DC on Fox 5 DC, and she appears regularly on KSL's Inside Sources, a Salt Lake City radio show. Fiona attended the University of Arizona and graduated with a bachelor's degree in political science. Fiona, welcome to The Curious Task. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. So we base each episode on a theme and question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how does immigration make us freer? And really, we'll be exploring your thoughts on immigration and its benefits and so on and so forth. Lots to get into. But first, I'd like to start with this pillar. So you have many articles that cover different angles of the immigration discussion. But overall, it seems you are largely pro-immigration in many ways. Would you say that your view on immigration is that it's a good thing, sort of based on more consequential arguments and results and so on and so forth? Is that where your interest lies? Or is it more of a rights-based angle? Do you think people have the freedom to move around as they see fit? Or, or is it both? Sort of paint a little picture of how you approach this in your mind first before we get into specifics. I think there are a couple ways to look at it, right? If you're looking at it from the rights-based perspective, um, there's, there's high demand on the American perspective, right? The American side to have immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're a country of immigrants. It's a similar story in Canada. Uh, there's a freedom of association aspect to that that I think is very, very important. And in, in the ways that immigrants enrich our lives, I think there's a, a recognition of that. And that if we can have more people coming in and doing more things that benefit our societies, then we should be able to welcome those people. But also I do think there is that, that consequential aspect, right? Uh, we have a labor shortage in the U.S. right now. And, and by bringing in people to fill key roles, that's a really important thing for our economy, uh, more so for how we enrich societies and how we kind of build communities. And, and the pillars of communities are very often centered around immigration and centered on those migration stories that you know most Americans tend to have at this point, but that new Americans are, are bringing with them more immediately. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean... We obviously, we're, we're technically a Canadian-based podcast. You live in the States. I mean, we obviously keep a, a close eye on what's going on with our friends in the United States, and we talk to a lot of people from there as well. But I like to always ask our guests when they are from the U.S. just to get their on-the-ground sort of feeling of it. A lot of people from the outside think there's an overall, frankly, cultural and political problem with right, right now with, people, with how people view both immigrants and immigration in general. What, what's, what's your general take on that? Is it, are things as bad as some on the outside think? Or do you think there's a lot of areas and avenues for discussion? Is all hope lost when it comes to, you know, do cooler heads prevail? Tell us what your overall cultural feeling is on, the, on just the discussion around immigration and immigrants. I think the overall cultural discussion of immigration, it's very zero sum, right? And I think people, they look at social and political and fiscal and even environmental terms. And they see immigrants as a a net loss. They see them as net takers as opposed to givers as well. And I I think that framing is a mistake. Um, And I I think a lot of the issue actually is is that it's not that people don't like immigrants. It's that they disagree with the way immigration happens in a lot of ways. And a lot of those problems are are government 
promoted government caused, you know, making the system more chaotic, making it so that people can't come in in more productive and predictable ways, coming to communities in ways that would benefit those communities, but also just not strain resources to the extent that you see in a lot of places. So, you know, you see something like uh, the southern border, it, it is busy. There are a lot of people coming. Um, people have different views on whether it's good that people want to come in that way or bad. But there are undeniably things that the government could be doing to make the conversation more productive and to make it so that people aren't resentful of the people who are coming over. Mm. So I, I think there's an interesting divide there in pro-immigrant but anti-immigration uh, where government policy is, is exacerbating that second part in very dangerous ways. We, we, we have a former prime minister, Stephen Harper, and he's, I, I've seen him say in a couple different times in interviews, so it seems to be a slogan of his, when people ask him about immigration policy in the United States and his view of it, he says that he thinks, he thinks that it's incredibly uh, too easy to be an illegal immigrant in the U.S., but incredibly too hard to become a legal immigrant. Would you agree with that overall sentiment? That's fair, you know, and I think there's this common, it's almost a joke on the libertarian side, right? We don't want any illegal immigrants, just make them all legal, right? You can accept all the same people, but if you legalize them, then they're going to come in in predictable ways. And you look through the history of U.S. immigration policy, and as soon as there are work visas available for people, illegal or unauthorized immigration, however you want to call it, drops dramatically, right? You look at the the Bracero program in the 1950s for Mexican uh, farm workers, agricultural workers, and it reduced unlawful immigration by about 90%. Five million people used it. And it was just such an important way for those people to be able to better their situations and their standings, also to serve American farmers and their needs, but also just to, again, make the border more predictable and make it work for people and to address the demand as opposed to ignoring it. Mm-hmm. And so, so policy speaking, what do you generally propose as someone who is like pro-immigration, that more people should be allowed in general, that there are keyhole solutions and categories one could look at, or maybe both? Like where, where, where do you approach the actual solutions to this sort of discussion? I think there are a lot of sides that you need to consider, right? You're always going to have people who are coming from less educated backgrounds and less fortunate economic circumstances. So I think you, you need to find a way to bring them in in productive ways as well. And I think something that's really promising is uh, private refugee sponsorship. And that's something that Canada has done really, really well Mm -hmm. uh, for for a long time now. And we've just started doing this in the U.S. We started it with the um, Afghanistan withdrawal. We launched a pilot program to help people who had been evacuated from there to get them financial sponsorship, but also those community connections and to build that. Uh, It's since been rolled out for Ukrainians as well as Cubans and Haitians, Venezuelans, some other nationalities as well. Kind of these major sources within the Western Hemisphere of people who are coming across the border. And it's been very successful in reducing unauthorized migration there, too. Thousands of Americans have said that they want to financially sponsor people from those countries. They've welcomed them into places that wouldn't normally get refugees. So they're going to more rural areas and the inside of the country. And that can be really important in building goodwill and understanding, too. So that's been really promising. Um, And I think that's a way that we need to kind of consider the humanitarian side of, of immigration. Uh, but on the employment side, and, and that's, I think, one of the, the more important and undercovered things within immigration policy uh, is work visas. So if you think low skill, if you want to think in terms of low skill and high skill, maybe low education, high education mm-hmm. is the better way to phrase it. 
if you think of you know farm work, uh, farmers they say that they can't get people in time, right? People are arriving weeks into the harvesting season. They don't have the ability to staff their farms, so they're looking to illegal immigration, right? Illegal immigrants, undocumented people are the ones who, in very large numbers, are staffing farms just because the legal system is so slow, expensive, and difficult to navigate. So that's a really important thing to clarify. There's been legislation, but all immigration legislation kind of falls short now just because it's it's a toxic issue for a lot of politicians. But then if you look at the high-skilled area too, right, there's no startup visa in the U.S., for example. And it, we've had just remarkable luck with immigrants starting startups and, and those being completely successful, right? The top startups in the country, 55% of them were started by immigrants, it's really incredible. So I think we really need to recognize that we are still a top destination, Canada even more so at this point mm-hmm. for international students, right? Just recognize and not squander that opportunity, right? It's it's a benefit to be a place that people want to go to. You just need to figure out how to let them come productively. Right. And and sort of back to one of the things we talked about briefly at the very beginning too, but like sort of this this rights-based things versus this consequential thing. I, I think everything you're outlining is very important and I, I personally believe that these arguments are important and it's, an, it's, it's, it's very key that people understand the kinds of things that you're saying. But do you think that there's also a risk that too much discussion about the economic benefits to the quote-unquote country when it comes to immigration might get people a little too used to the idea that someone really shouldn't be going anywhere or going to a different country unless they're going to benefit someone else? How do you sort of handle that sort of objection i mean like you also seem to be the type of person and correct me if i'm wrong that thinks people also just have a right to go where they need to as long as they're not hurting anybody so i do think that's right you know i I think that people should be free to associate with the places and and the people that they want to associate with from from the native perspective and from the foreigner perspective Um, i think that if we talk in purely economic terms it does risk commodifying immigrants Um, I do think that the economic argument is in a lot of ways easier to sell, unfortunately. I Mm -hmm. think that a lot of Americans still think in in those terms. Um, And in a lot of ways, it can be the way that they relate to immigrants most Mm. directly. And I should say, it's not that they shouldn't. I mean, like, let's say, let's just construct a a scenario in our head, for example, where he said, we're going to let in these uh, a billion people and we know for a fact a nuclear war is going to start, everyone's going to die. Well, clearly there's a consequence there. We shouldn't. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't ever think consequentially, but, but, uh, but, but I do agree with you that I, I guess I, you know, that too, too much of that is, is, is sort of, as you said, risks like commodifying people and always making it seem like a, a macroeconomic discussion rather than a people in a rights Right, discussion. it can be compassionate and it can be, you know, it can be economic and compassionate in, in two breaths, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I do think that that makes it a more contentious issue, unfortunately. I don't think the political climate is set up to reward compassion necessarily for immigrants at this point it, you get labeled as somebody who promotes amnesty or you know just just these these words that are so supercharged now and don't actually mean anything that right. they the, used to the mean. whole sanctuary cities right. and all sanctuary that kind of stuff cities absolutely yeah, yeah. It, it's just it's really divorced from reality i think I, I lived in in tucson for a while kind of near the southern border and now that i've moved to dc and comparing the two experiences it's it's really shocking to see how dysfunctional people think the border is, and it's it's not like that, right? So you so you didn't see people thousands of people every day crossing the border and chucking things at each other and causing chaos. No, yes, not that this is an, <laughs> an on the ground uh, journalism type of show because it's just simply not. But I mean, since I have someone here that was on the ground there, what what is it like then living on a? And of course, your experience isn't every of border town or border state, but but what is that more like then? Right, people I, haven't actually heard of that. Yeah, I think it's important to stipulate the Arizona border is very different. It's uh, it's got a lot of fence 
fence and a lot of wall. Uh, it's very mountainous, so it's it's much harder to cross, which also makes it much more deadly. Um, there are crosses everywhere for migrants who died crossing the desert, right? Mm-hmm. It's one of the major volunteer efforts down there is to leave water in the wilderness for people so they don't die in the in the heat. It's it's really a brutal landscape, but it's a place that people, even if, if you disagree with the way they're coming, you don't want to see people dying in your backyard. Um, it can be very, very contentious in some of the border towns, and, and you have uh, militias uh, kind of in, in some areas, right? Private citizens trying to keep people out because um, they see that as, as something that the federal government is failing at doing. So it, it, there are two sides of it, really. But I think the most uh, under-discussed aspect of living down there is just the security apparatus. And this kind of gets to the the question that we're framing this podcast with. Just you have m- many fewer privacy rights, and your civil liberties are definitely more constrained if you live near the border, mm. even as a, a citizen, even as a native. Right. Well, actually, let's, let's get into that a little further because another, as you said, another angle and one of the main points of this conversation is is, is exactly that and, and and the freedom of people in a certain country. You know, um, you know, a lot of people do talk uh, on many different issues uh, about how misguided policies that are aimed at outsiders of a country can create bad situations for insiders of a country. I mean, you sort of explore this one example or angle uh, with an article you wrote called uh, "The Government Is Turning Border Surveillance on Everyday Americans." So, give us a rundown of this thought process and and what's going on there yeah so my my thought you know i I come at this issue from from a couple angles right immigration is is great and in my heart and in my mind but preventing immigration it's it's like preventing anything else right when you're outlawing something you're just driving it underground which makes tamping it out much much harder makes the government that much more repressive and it makes the activity itself that much more dangerous so you have this dangerous journey for migrants who are, are determined to make the journey no matter what right that's why it's so deadly uh, in, in Arizona specifically. Um, but then you also see these security surveillance, all sorts of just punitive, watchful eye things being turned on citizens. So there's just a vast network of surveillance towers that are around the border now, including in populated areas, towns with thousands of people. Uh, there are blimps that get launched around the border with you know, up to seven, eight, nine miles of surveillance capability. Um, there was one town that I, I profiled, Nogales, Arizona, and the federal government launched a surveillance blimp without telling anyone in the town. Hmm. Just launched it over the town one day, and I called the city officials, and they said, yeah, this, we have nothing to do with this. This is all the federal government. And it's, it's watching backyards ostensibly. It's not just migrants that are, are going to be in its path. It's since been taken down, but it was, it was really a big shock for them. But also there's this this thing written into American law where there's a hundred mile border zone where the border right. patrol can conduct warrantless stops, including on private land uh, within 25 miles of the border. So if you're living in a town or on a piece of private property right. that you own within this ra- uh, exactly. within this like range, I guess you're basically saying if someone suspects that, I don't know, whatever, you're hiding an illegal immigrant in your basement, you can have a warrantless search of your house. Not even just that, right? It's if there's anything illicit, if you look a certain way, mm. you, they can stop stop you right so there's there are obviously profiling concerns and and just it's it's very very uh, contentious uh, to the point where advocates call it a fourth amendment free zone right that mm. this is just a place where stop and seizure law doesn't apply and and two-thirds of all americans live within that zone because it, it contains all of the coastal cities uh, it applies to waters as well so it, it's it's just huge and even beyond the border you get all sorts of border surveillance being turned on americans so 
your data can be checked by border agents in the airport anytime, right? The Immigration Customs uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement in the U.S. has access to driver's license data for three quarters of Americans. Um, during protests, uh, when George Floyd was killed a couple years ago, um, DHS turned border surveillance equipment on the protesters just to, hmm. to keep an eye on the situation. So you really can't escape it, right? The border follows you anywhere in the country. It's It's been deeply militarized and, and policed uh, in ways that are very difficult to reel in and very difficult to avoid. Mm-hmm. And it's a little early yet, but I think this is actually a good place to take our break before we jump into a couple other different things here. So everyone, we're going to do that right now. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Fiona Harrigan today. Okay. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Fiona Harrigan today. So, Fiona, I think the first half was great. We explored a lot of things. I stopped us before we were getting into another part of the conversation there, so I'll get into that now. So, um, it actually kind of latches onto something you touched on and got into a bit at the beginning, but I want to go back to it to go a little more in depth with this um, low skilled, high skilled, or low education, uh, high education, higher education sort of uh, distinction. Um, and I want to get into that a little further as a specific policy proposal because some are proponents of the idea that sure, we should let people in, but only the right kind of professionals and high-skilled folks that the quote-unquote economy needs. A lot of people for various legitimate reasons, but also probably maybe perhaps some prejudiced reasons will often like to picture someone coming from a different country that's maybe going to go work at Microsoft uh, rather than someone's gonna, someone that's going to help a farmer on a farmer's field. Um, you do have an article that basically talks about quote unquote, and you do put in quotes, low-skilled workers uh, being something that's actually also... Uh, these folks also important to respect and also recognize and something that also the economy can need. Could, could you get into that a little further then as well and what you found out there when you're writing about this and what point you're making? Yeah, I think especially during COVID, we saw the the most critical jobs were, were largely worked by big shares of immigrants, right? You think about service jobs, uh, food harvesting, um, construction, all of those things are, are things that I name in this article. And these fields, because we haven't had people coming in for so long and so many years, they're very understaffed now. Um, the visa system is, is trying to catch up, but as many government things are, it's lethargic and, and it's, it's been tough to catch up. <laughs> right. Right. So you see a lot of arguments now that as a result of having fewer immigrants, for example, within uh, harvesting food, agricultural sense, uh, that food prices are, are, have been very, very high. And this is a part of... of why. It's just that people haven't been able to stock shelves with as much of their product anymore because they have fewer immigrants actually picking their products, fewer agricultural workers working on, on in, in this field now. So I think when we think about high-skilled immigrants versus low-skilled immigrants, people favor the, the first as 
more politically feasible, right? It's, it's easier to say, okay, well, anybody with a PhD can come to the country. They're going to work in a startup in San Francisco, and it's going to be great and immediately beneficial. Right. Um, but they, they ignore the fact that a lot of the most critical bedrock fields are worked by immigrants that they call lower skilled. Um, I, I think it's, it's a false dichotomy. It's, it's skilled regardless. Um, but these are, these are things that were kind of laid bare during the pandemic. Uh, housing costs, another example. Um, a, a huge share of the immigrants who were deported in the mid-2000s were construction workers. So if you, you think about that, just in, in how it leads to higher production costs and higher housing costs eventually, uh, it goes all the way down. I think it's really important to solve both ends of that puzzle. Mm-hmm. What, what do you say to somebody who, and, and I, I might I personally might, might not like their idea of a policy object at that point, but I think the objection or the initial reaction is something that should be answered and might be a legitimate concern. Someone might say, well... Um, if there's a certain industry that needs a certain type of quote unquote low skilled type of worker or whatnot, like we have a bunch of people here that aren't employed and you know such and such area of the economy is not doing so well, why, why not get those people to work there? Why, why do we bring it, need to bring in more people and so on and so forth? What would you say to someone even conversationally when, when they bring up that kind of objection? There's been a lot of research done to that effect, uh, largely by the Cato Institute. People like Alex Narasta have done really good work seeing do native born workers get displaced by these lower skilled immigrant workers coming in? And, and by and large, there isn't huge displacement. Uh, there isn't even slight displacement, right? They find very little effect on uh, wages. Uh, wages either stay the same or rise. Uh, what they do find is that immigrants tend to work jobs that, especially in the American context, that American workers either can't work or, or don't want to work. Um, we see this now, again, having a labor shortage. It, it would be great to have more people. Uh, and a lot of the jobs that are unfilled right now are these jobs that historically have been filled by people on H-2A visas who are coming in uh, to fill temporary, uh, more service industry oriented, things of that nature. So if we think about that research, right, it's it's a net gain, uh, in, in, in my opinion, and in these researchers' findings. Uh, there's also the, the angle that immigrants are very entrepreneurial, so they're actually founding a lot of businesses when they come here and gain their footing. So they can be net job creators, not just filling the one or two jobs that they come here to fill. Uh, so that's, that's an undercovered perspective, I think. Uh, there are some estimates that they found businesses 80% more than Americans do, which is really, really staggering. So if you think about them as, as uh, you know, they expand the pie. They don't take the pie. It's, it's really impressive. Right. And, and, the, and on that exact note, then, just to segue into that, I think it's a good place to bridge into another article you wrote about uh, many successful startups being founded by immigrants. And I forget the exact percentage there. I didn't put it in the notes, but um, you might have it with you or off the top of your head. But can you expand on your findings there? I thought that was very interesting and also explain why that's important. Yeah. So these are findings by the National Foundation for American Policy. They took a look at the top startups in America valued at one billion or more. And they found that 55% of them were started by immigrants. Hmm. And if you expand that to immigrants or their kids founding or co-founding, it was two-thirds. Hmm. So it's it's really, really staggering how quickly people can gain their footing and, and just found these very, very important economic powerhouses. Uh, you think about that in the way that they they create products that Americans can use, right? It's It's things like SpaceX and, and Stripe and, and just important services. Uh, but also just the jobs that they create, right? These are thousands and thousands of jobs that you create that, that weren't there before. And, and you know, if, if we were a less hospitable economy, they would have been created elsewhere. So if you can think about it on a, an economic competition perspective, too, uh, that's an important angle as well. Um, 
But immigrants uh, beyond that, 22% of business owners in the U.S. are immigrants, uh, even though they're only 17% of the labor force. So it bleeds down even beyond these these high-achieving startups. Mm-hmm. And w- so on, on sort of another angle of the conversation then, uh, sort of back to the objections people might have, um, what do you... What do you make of governments restricting borders during a national emergency or crisis? Like, for instance, the pandemic, low-hanging fruit. <laughs> if we have to think of a crisis or an emergency, there's one right behind us that uh, only officially ended this year, according to some international organizations. You know, some people might say, just to frame it up here, that, okay, Fiona, I'm listening to you. This all sounds great, but, uh, you know, maybe the government should be more hands-off and actually allow more people to come in and so on and so forth and make that a less complicated process. But if there is a time to restrict movement and and actually have the government have a a harder uh, fist on that, if you will. Uh, It's during a a thing like a pandemic. I mean, punchline, I mean, you did write an article about uh, this sort of, the sort of, I think, Title 42 sort of restrictions, as they're called, coming in, and how you say people should be skeptical of that. Uh, So bigger question then. First, could you explain the Title 42 stuff and what that really was? And then talk to us about what your thoughts are on that. Absolutely. So Title 42, it's it's a part of the U.S. code that was basically never invoked uh, until the COVID pandemic. It's, it's a public health measure that says that you can suspend uh, interstate and international movement to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. Um, previously, it was used in things like uh, agricultural diseases, so diseases mm. between cows and stuff. Um, but then during the pandemic, uh, there, there's been reporting from places like the Associated Press uh, saying that when it was invoked, it was politically and not uh, health medically uh, motivated. So there were discussions behind closed doors, right? Mike Pence was a bit basically deputized to go to the CDC and, and ask them to make the recommendation that they invoke Title 42. The authority of Title 42 essentially would have let border officials expel migrants immediately upon crossing into the U.S., getting around the longstanding asylum uh, process. So basically it shut, it shut off asylum for, for several years for vulnerable people coming across the border. So he went to the CDC. The CDC said there's no medical basis for this. This doesn't make sense. Uh, he pushed them, and eventually it was, it was installed. Um, and uh, there, there's also been reporting that it came from a particularly hardliner immigration advisor named Stephen Miller, um, also behind family separation policies at the border. So uh, just there's, there's a nasty family tree to it. And mm-hmm. I think over the past several years, given that it's been around for as long as it has, uh, it, it lost its public health basis long, long ago, even as the pandemic became less of an issue for, for Americans. Mm-hmm. So, so it was invoked, uh, and I think recently it actually is expiring. Yes, um, yesterday. Yesterday, well, there so you May go. May 11th, wow. right, yesterday okay. for... And 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 so and, and so like in in your article you basically you know were saying that like a, a, if you're against COVID restrictions generally or you think perhaps a better way to frame it is um, if you're if you think the government basically went too far in other areas of COVID restrictions you should definitely be against Title Forty Two stuff. Some people keep these two things divided in their head, right? They might be upset that they can't go down the street to their favorite restaurant and and do what they want to do, um, but they still think, well, of course we shouldn't let people in, you know, the border. So so why do you think people should actually think of these as not one and the same, but as more related? than maybe they initially think? Why, why, why should they be thought of as hand-in-hand hand as you kind of talk about in your article? Yeah, so I think I, they're all emergency orders, right? All emergency powers. And I think emergency powers, though they're invoked in the name of an emergency, there's a lot of mission creep that can happen. And I think that's why people should be concerned about immigration restrictions. Uh, we saw a lot of restrictions on travel and, and relocation during the pandemic to begin with. 
Um, it, it was kind of that to the extreme level for immigrants. Mm. So if you think about the ways that a government can keep people from going certain places and doing certain things, I think it's it's a, a clear concern. And people were very willing to apply that logic to things like, uh, you know, there was an eviction moratorium that the CDC put in saying people couldn't be evicted during the pandemic. There was a lot of non-payment of rent as a result. So just these, these downstream effects. Uh, same thing for student loan repayment being stopped during the pandemic. I think a lot of conservative and, and libertarian-leaning people were very right to point out government overreach in those cases and the, and the potential for mission creep. But mm-hmm. for some reason, immigration has kind of stood out, despite there being basically no public health basis, as an exceptional case. Right. And speaking of emergencies or, or world events or things that might affect thinking on this, there's actually one another article you read that I found very interesting. Um, you know, uh, when, it, when 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 Russia invaded Ukraine, there were many people who uh, were opposed to the idea. Of, frankly, letting people with Russian citizenship travel anywhere, you seem to take an angle on this that. At least one of the fun things I pulled out of it that if you are interested in talking about foreign policy and and sort of um, sanctions in a type of way, like I'm talking about within that sort of theme of conversation, there are ways that um, you know things can be uh, done to a quote unquote geopolitical rival. And one of those things, I guess, and I'm sure you had like a little bit of fun with this article too. I take oh, it from yeah. the way it was written. But <laughs> hey, if you want to hit Russia where it hurts, allow more immigration. So make that connection for us. There's another interesting angle to the conversation. I thought for sure. And just to background it, right when Russia invaded. Ukraine. Obviously, it's 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 a horrible situation. I think a lot of libertarians were skeptical of uh, American military involvement, rightfully so. Um, but there were things that that were proposed in the immigration space that I, I found very very interesting. Um, this major argument that was made is that we should brain drain our our rivals, geopolitical rivals, right? Deprive them of of the minds that keep their economy and and their military moving in a lot of ways. Um, so think about programmers and software people, engineers, and, and just top scientists in the country. Uh, this has been proposed for China as well, just as a, as a form of competition between the two countries. Uh, make it a more hospitable environment socially and politically, and, and they're going to come here and, and want to stay here, whether they come here for university or they come here professionally. Uh, it's, it's a good landing pad, but I think just... Being able to show people the benefits of, of your country and to, again, reinforce that your country is a place that people want to go to, it's a good way to stick it to a geopolitical rival without actually lobbing bombs and, and in inflicting those costs. Mm-hmm. Um, during the invasion, it, it was it was kind of a, a bit of a red scare moment, truth be told. Yeah. Um, a lot of American politicians were very skeptical of Russian influence at all. Uh, there were a couple high-profile politicians, actually, who called for kicking all... Russian uh, university students out of the country, right. which very, very interestingly, actually would have kicked uh, Alexei Navalny's daughter out of Stanford. Right. So if you think about the dissidents and their kids who come to the country, right, they're, again, there are just these, these horrible downstream effects. But mm-hmm. uh, being a landing pad for, for people fleeing persecution and, and horrible situations, giving them a chance to voice their being dissidents, I, I think is it's a benefit to them and it's a benefit to us as mm-hmm. well. It also seems to be a good idea to cult, to culturally, um, hopefully sort of make the point that, you know, the, the people are different than their government or separate the person from a state, right? Cause Absolutely. Because it did get to the point where, um, I'm not sure how often or how much has happened in the States, but even in Canada, there was like people talking about um, canceling certain orchestras and ballets yes. for a bit because it's like, it's just not the right time for this. We don't want to listen to orchestra music written by a Russian. And right. that, that and that's that to me, uh, my bias is that's ridiculous. So I think like, yeah. you know, keeping sort of the, the doors open to, um, for instance, someone who might be from Russia, if they have 
have nothing to do with the war and they're not a war criminal or just trying right. to get out of there. That kind of also, to me at least, keeps that cultural uh, door open, which is right. more important. That's a separate thing and very important, the cultural exchange between uh, two places or two yes. uh, sets of cultures, I guess, than just whatever's going on with states, right? Yes, absolutely. There was a, a restaurant, to your point about you know the, the cancellations, if you want to call them that, that happened in the early days of the war. There's a restaurant across from my office called Russia House. It's mm. owned by Polish people, I believe, or Lithuanians, you know, not Russians at all. But right. because of the name, it was vandalized again and again and oh, again. Okay, yeah. And eventually they just closed because they, they couldn't stay afloat. So yeah. Yeah. If you hear these, these, as if the restaurant was an embassy or yeah, something, exactly. <laughs> Just a diplomatic post. You right. hear all these politicians saying, you know, we want to hit Russia where it hurts. We want to hit the oligarchs and and the government, but not the citizens. They have nothing to do with this. I think that message kind of changed over time uh, to a degree. Uh, I think there's a view that if you're not overthrowing the regime, then you're complicit. And never mind the restrictions on free thought and expression that happen now right uh, which makes it all the more important i think that we we offer both that humanitarian branch and then also that strategic branch of, mm-hmm. of inviting people in right which overall though i mean we have talked about a lot so far and i think i'm going to move us to our final swing of the conversation here but generally speaking and and this is you were, you were talking about sort of trigger words earlier and labels and things that are thrown around and so on and especially when it comes to immigration would you to use one though uh that or one that has become a trigger word would you sort yourself sort of into more of the categories or someone leaning towards more being an open borders person per se or where do you land on this discussion it's always where we come with the libertarians right right it's the natural landing spot i do i do lean that way right i, I don't think that open borders is accurate to basically anyone uh i i think oh you mean like what it means when someone right, says that absolutely yeah. I, I think it's a misnomer in a way because there are, there are people who are as, as liberal in immigration as they come, but they don't want terrorists to come, for example. And that's always the first example that people bring up if you say you're open borders. Mm-hmm. So I think short of those examples, right, I, I think that we should be accepting vast numbers more than, than we are, both in humanitarian ways and economic ways. Um, if that makes me open borders, it certainly makes me opener borders. So I, I would right. be very comfortable with with opener borders. Well, if we defined it as, for example, like um, not necessarily there's no quote not for the sake of this discussion, not necessarily that there's no border security or any check, but the idea that as long as you're not some sort of criminal or you know so on and so forth or pose no threat, the idea that anyone should really be able to go anywhere provided they're not harming someone else. Absolutely. Um, would you throw yourself into that kind of category? Absolutely. I think it, it would make all of us more efficient. Right. I think it, it would make immigrants far better off. It would make their families at home better off. They would be sending money back to them. Mm-hmm. It would be benefiting us and our communities, both socially, economically, politically. Uh, I, I think that those are, are really critical things. And I think those are things that we've kind of left behind in modern American immigration policy, at least. But mm-hmm. even just post-COVID, seeing how countries have clamped down. And I think becoming a place where people are seen as as vectors for disease and and for danger is is a really dangerous thing um and i I think that's had damaging and lasting effects on on countries and their willingness Mm -hmm. to welcome people Mm -hmm. so i i hope that we can get away from that mindset and and get toward more of the place that you're describing where people if they haven't done anything criminal in their past anything to to cast doubt on their character like that uh, that they would be allowed in. Mm-hmm. I, I would hope that that would be the case. And if they're not, not to mention, I mean, we talk about all these other losses, uh, you know, skills, certain benefits, and so on and so forth. Not, not to mention that sort of the uh, the cultural and social losses too. Because I mean, I mean, from from a basic perspective, if someone likes a certain type of food, if there's less of that culture coming <laughs> in the country, you might get a fake version of it, but you're certainly not going to get the authentic stuff. Absolutely, and just losing that image as as a place where people want to go. I think there's there's danger in becoming more closed off and and having that uh, image. 
Um, again, like I mentioned earlier, university students are naming other countries as their top destinations. Uh, the U.S. has kind of fallen off of that perch. Canada, to its benefit, has better uh, guarantees of the life that you can build after you graduate from a mm-hmm. university. And I think that's really going to contribute to the society, right? As people are aging and as the workforce is beginning to retire, it's, it's more and more critical that you bring in people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's move to our formal wrap-up here. I mean, I want to make sure uh, that in each episode, the guest ultimately has the last words. Let me say, you know, we've talked about a lot. If you could bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our explanation of the question, I think the best way to do it, as always, is through this official last question. So what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on, frankly, why immigration is a good thing and how it makes us more free and everything we've talked about? In other words, if you wanted someone to leave listening to us here and have them take away one, two, or just a few things, if anything, what would you want them to take away from the discussion? I think it's it's really important to focus on those those kind of two major through lines that we covered, right? That immigration expands your freedom in a lot of ways as a, as a participant in an economy and in a society. Uh, your economic situation is is improved by them building businesses here and employing people and and being your coworker. Uh, your everyday life is richer because of the restaurants you can visit and the businesses you can shop at. All of that is really, really critical. Um, but also there's this aspect of essentially outlawing immigration, taking away your freedom as well, mm-hmm. um, that the downstream effects will come back on you as a citizen and not just the people that a government is trying to keep out, that your privacy will suffer, uh, that your finances will suffer because these things are expensive. It, it takes taxpayer dollars to keep people out and build border walls and surveillance towers and on and on and on. Um, I think those are, those are the main things that it's, it's really critical to, to focus on. I think we'll leave it there then. Fiona Harrigan, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. Thank you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 